Hello, and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. And welcome to uh, Midwest March Madness, I guess (laughs) we're going to call it. We're recording these in, in February. So, I don't know. We might change our mind in the next episode. I guess we'll see. <laughs> it is interesting looking at um, other places in the Midwest and not, instead of just Michigan for a month. It's definitely been interesting so far. Yeah. Yeah, for me too. And I think you're first this week. All righty. I have Anthony Sowell also known as the Cleveland Strangler. Now, I will add little things here and there because what I did find online kind of left a few things. But since then, I have watched the documentary and listened to another podcast that had quite a bit of information. So I'll be able to add like little tidbits in when I when I see room for it. But I see here, Anthony Edward Sowell was born on August 19, 1949, and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. He was one of seven children born to Claudia Garrison, who was a single mother. Seven other children lived in the home with Anthony, his mother, and his siblings as well. They belonged to a sister of his, and after her death from a chronic illness, they moved in. So we're looking at him... And all of his siblings, plus now his sister's seven children. Wow. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And unfortunately, Claudia, his mother, was well known to abuse her grandchildren. Oh. Online, it said that it left her own children alone. But in the podcast I listened to, they kind of said that everybody got it. I'm not quite sure on that. But it says, according to Sowell's niece, Liana Davis, Claudia liked to treat them to physical abuse while her own own children watched from nearby rooms. In one instance, she made Leona get naked in front of the other children, then whipped her with electrical cords until she bled. Oh my gosh. Of course, Sowell couldn't only allow the children to be abused by their grandmother, as he began raping his niece almost daily. Oh, shit. Starting when she was only 10 years old. Oh, my gosh. It was also reported by Leona that the other males in the home also committed rapes. From what I heard in other areas, she kept trying to escape or, you know, let people know what was going on. She was... Nobody was really helping her. And finally, she did escape and get away. And she ended up getting taken to, like, a mental health facility for children. And when that happened, Sowell went on a downfall. Like, lost his mind because... All of a sudden now, he has nothing to take his anger out on. And so his grades start slipping. He ends up leaving school early. It's... But he wanted to blame her for that, of course. Of course. Her leaving. Wow. Come 1978, when Sowell was 19 years old, he decided to enlist in the Marines. He was trained as an electrician... And in 1980, he spent a year with the Third Air, uh, Third Force Service Support Group overseas. Uh, after returning back to the States, he spent some time in Cherry Point, North Carolina. Creepily enough, I remember Grandpa talking about being at Cherry Point himself. Oh, really? He's talked to me a, a lot about it. That was one of the big areas that he went to, apparently, wow. from what I remember. He's mentioned it. Ugh, which... Obviously, this would have been way after, because this was the 80s. Oh, yeah. So it was after, you know, Grandpa was d- did his time and everything at Cherry Point. And in 1984, he was sent to Camp Butler in Okinawa, Japan. The following year, in 1985, he spent three days at Camp Pendleton in California. And this is where online and everything else kind of clash. 
because it says all that it told me is, oh, he, he spent the three days there before being discharged. The reality of it is while he was like in, I believe, Okinawa, he was married. He married another veteran, somebody who was in the military, and they were having, a, from what I heard, they were having a lot of issues with a separation. They didn't know what was going to happen. And after he got back, she got back to the area and they both were discharged from the military. Hmm. But it does say it, he was discharged on January 18, 1985. And although his departure was rather quick in the end, he did receive a number of awards while in service because, of course, he did. Some included the Sea Service Deployment Ribbon, a Good Conduct Medal with a One Service Star, Meritorious Mast, Two Letters of, of Appreciation, and a Certificate of Commendation. You know, that is a little surprising to me that he did so well because it seems like a lot of the people that we've looked into that have these issues that go into the military get kicked out or they get a, you know, dishonorable discharge for, you know, not listening to their commanding officers or, you know, they don't make it through basic or something right. like that. So that seems unusual. Yeah, it, it really is. But from what I was hearing, um, it was like he was having such a hard time with supposedly all the abuse but going into the military was like having a structured version where he was okay with the yelling and everything like that because he's lived his life with abuse so he could handle it. Hmm. But he liked the structure of like knowing where to be and doing what he was told, which to me just didn't sound, I don't know. Yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of backwards for those kind of guys where like they want control. They want to be in charge. They like the power. So it does seem odd that he did so well in such a, such a structured lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were saying that, you know, he had a first love in school that broke his heart, which kind of started things off. And then his wife leaving set the rest of it off. Like, uh, yeah, blame the women in his like because they always do they always say oh you know he got hurt and so that's why he acted this way yeah right. i could see why he got anger from it but it's not the women's fault no for him being psychotic um and then fast forward four years it's 1989 and a woman who was three months pregnant at the time attempted to leave anthony sowell's residence he tied her hands and feet with a tie and a belt, then gagged her with a rag. She managed to get away and told police he choked me real hard because my body started tingling. I thought I was going to die. Wow. Anthony was charged with kidnapping, rape, and attempted rape. He ended up pleading guilty to the attempted rape and received a 15-year sentence in prison and was released in the year of my high school graduation, 2005. From what I heard, I th I can't remember if it was a documentary or the other podcast that I listened to. There were two, two women that something happened to. And one of them, they like disappeared after they got him. Like they went, like the police left her, I guess her at the station or whatever and went and got him. And when they returned, she was gone. Nobody mm -hmm. had known her full name. Nobody had known anything, and so they couldn't, like, use her as a reason to prosecute him further because she was gone. Yeah, they don't have a witness at that point. So all they really were able to get him on was the attempted rape. Wow. I will say, as much as I'm livid that he was let out, he did serve his entire sentence. So I can't sit here and say, oh, he was let go earlier than promised, like I usually say. Like, I'm usually, like, so mad. Please do not do their jobs. They tried. Yeah. I mean, th and they gave him 15 years for attempted rape, which is shocking. That's higher most than of those... they give some people for actual rape. Murder. Yeah. <laughs> and murder. Yes. I know. Exactly. That's That kind of threw me off. I was like, as much as I want to be mad, I'm kind of like, well, they gave him a long sentence. And he yeah. was in there the entire time. 
Seems like the police did their job. The prosecutor did their job. The judge did right. his job. He was right. in for the full time. The part that did make me mad was that, like, part of, I guess, part of everything that he had to do while he was in there is he had to go to counseling. It was, like, required. He refused it. And they oh. still let him out. And so my thing is, is, like, what I was what I was thinking is, like, and saying to even my mother when we were watching and listening to this stuff together, I was like, if it's required, they should say, okay, you've done the 15 years, but you never did this. Yeah. And this is required. So you're going to be here until this required stuff is done. But he basically said to um, another inmate that was there at the time who was on the documentary, I'm not going to do it. That's my business. Nobody, you know, basically like nobody needs to be in my business like that. Maybe it was like he could have gotten out earlier if he did the therapy. But because I mean, he, because he chose not to, they couldn't hold him past the maximum. Yeah, right. That's my only that that's my only thought process. Yeah. That's why I, you know, at first, because they weren't going into so much that I was finding online I was putting in here, you know, that I was so mad that everything was obviously the ball was dropped because he should have been getting a sentence for all of the things, kidnapping, rape, and attempted. But come to find out, one of the people took off. So they really couldn't get him on everything. Yeah. Um, That'd be difficult. Right. For the next two years um, after getting out, Anthony worked in a factory until 2007 when he became uh, began claiming unemployment and would garner extra cash by selling scrap metal. At this time, Anthony joined an online dating service while dating someone. That's something they left a lot out. Wow. <laughs> like, like I said, a lot was left out, so I was quite frustrated. But I'll add it here and there. Um, he was dating somebody. He was dating... Lori Frazier, at the time, the niece of Cleveland Mayor um, Frank G. Jackson, at the time. Something that was also left out in a lot of places was he was a crack addict. And so was Lori. And so they oh. were constantly, yeah. And he was mad because she would also, she would just all of a sudden disappear on crack benders. And he wouldn't hear from her for a while. And As so, addicts tend to do. <laughs> yep. And so I think that was part of, you know, why they were on again, off again a lot. And why she had an incredible rap sheet as well. Hmm. And of course, when he joined the online dating service, he had it stating on his profile that he was a master who was looking for a submissive woman that he could train. Ew. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean yeah. if that's your that's your thing uh, you know that's for you that's not for me though right but coming from this guy like it's just like already all the flags all the things happening it just gives me the ick vibe yeah. i'm i'm never one to ick anyone's yum but that with him makes me go ew <laughs> really bad um, like you said what to me no yeah no. And at this time, he was living with his stepmother. She was really ill and would be in and out of the hospital quite a lot. And around this time is when neighbors apparently, from what I read, is when they started noticing a foul odor. I don't think that that really started happening much until after the stepmother was fully out of the house. But... Yeah, yeah, no. The health department did receive quite a few complaints. And so well had apparently told Lori first that it was, you know, from his stepmother when she was in the house. And then later that it was from the sausage, uh, sausage shop that was next door to the home. So right next to the home was this big sausage shop, plant, whatever. I did see on a documentary that the health department went in there and made them spend thousands of dollars on fixing things, thinking that this place was the smell. Oh. It was not the smell. The smell yeah. did not go away. 
If I was thinking that a sausage shop had a smell that bad, you wouldn't be buying from them. And then, ooh. No. The house permeated the neighborhood. Yeah, um, I guess so. But of course, obviously, soon, though, the real reason for the smell would be discovered, unfortunately. Um, and in September of 2009, Anthony invited a woman he knew back to his house uh, for a drink. On September 22nd, she arrived at the police station and reported that after a few drinks, he became angry, hit her, choked her, and raped her as she passed out. On October 29, 2009, police arrived at Sowell's residence with an arrest warrant, except he wasn't there. However, they did find two bodies on the living room floor. And two days later, he was located and arrested. As police investigated the home, they found four additional bodies in the crawl spaces and one buried in the basement in a shallow grave. Furthermore, outside, they discovered three bodies and a fourth set of partial remains. Wow. A skull was located in a bucket in the basement as well. Oh. Altogether, they had found the remains of 11 victims. The majority were strangled. And some, some still showed ligature, uh, ligature marks around their necks. Anthony Sowell was charged with the murders and his bond was set at $5 million. After numerous days, he was put on trial on June 6, 2011. In addition to the 11 counts of aggravated murder, there were 70 additional charges, including rape, kidnapping, abuse of a corpse, and tampering with evidence. Originally, Sowell pleaded not guilty by cough, cough, reason of insanity. People which, like that one. Yep, people like using that. Later, though, he changed it to just not guilty. Because it's like, come on. Thankfully, though, on July 22nd, Anthony Sowell was found guilty on all but two counts. His sentencing took place on August 12th, and he was sentenced to death. Before I go further with more information on, like, life and sentencing, I would like to talk about some of his victims. I will say that the majority, if not all, were revolving around crack. Um, this neighborhood apparently had a really bad addiction problem with crack. A lot of them were mothers. Almost all of them were mothers who were struggling. One of the parts of the documentary that really made me angry was that they had the local shop owner who was right there down the street. He said that he could smell everything and that there was even garbage bags in the trash can behind his building that reeked. And no matter what he did, the smell never went away. So I'm thinking there were possibly more bodies Yeah, that they never found. But he was a real piece of work, that shop owner. He thought of Anthony so well as kind of like a Dexter or a vigilante. What? He said, we need many more Anthony Sowells out there because he's really taking care of the trash for everybody. Wow. That's a horrible thing to say. It made me physically ill watching that. And it made me angry. Because these people had families. These people had children. Yes, they had an addiction problem. But that addiction doesn't make them garbage and a yeah. waste. They're human beings. Exactly. They needed, they needed help. I know that they did speak with a lot of like survivors that did get away. This is where the police did drop the ball, though. Uh-oh. Because a few of these women, the survivors, would go to the police. Do you think anything was done? By the look on your face, I'm going to guess no. No. Not, not going down there. Basically, like, one girl got called back on a report saying there's no proof that he did anything to you. And then on... The doc, the document, it said something like she wasn't trustworthy ah. because because she had done crack, I guess. Yeah. So because she had an addiction, you couldn't trust her word 
and the bruises and the marks around her throat and the marks on her arm when she was nothing, nothing mattered because mm, she's just a drug addict. Screw her. So a lot of these women could have lived yeah. because many women went from like the beginning all throughout like three or four women tried reporting that got away and finally the last one did it but it was enough to just like make me really irritated but the first timelines uh the timelines of the murders their ages and deaths are based off my book um i do have a book here called the big book of serial killers and he is in here so i went off of this and wiki the ages on Wikipedia and the ages in here are different. Oh. Same as with the documentary. The documentary was more towards Wikipedia. So I wish I would have followed through on that end. Because it was saying that somebody on here was like, I thought they were saying 17. I don't know. But what, what I have down here. So the ages may have been a little off. But they're in the close vicinity. Crystal Dozier, age 35. She went missing May 17, 2007. Or, you know, based off of either her death or missing, it didn't specify. Tashana Culver is showing as being aged 33. And this was in June of 2008. LaShonda Long is being shown as age 25. That was in August of 2008. Michelle Mason, age 45, October 8th of 2008. Tanya Carmichael, age 53, November 10, 2008. Kim Yvette Smith, age 44, January 17, 2009. Nancy Cobb, age 44, April 24, 2009, Amelda Hunter, age 47, the spring of 09, Janice Webb, age 49, June of 09, Talisha Fortson, age 31, June 3 of 09, and Diane Turner, age 38, September of 09. Again, the ages may be a little off because I couldn't get a straight answer anywhere, really. But I do want to talk about some of the women that uh, Wikipedia talks about and where they were discovered. Tanya Carmichael was found buried in Sowell's backyard. She uh, showed signs of strangulation and was identified through DNA evidence. Talisha Forsen, although she had been missing since June, her mother didn't report her missing until she heard the news coverage about the bodies in Sowell's home. I guess seeing that kind of was like, wait a second, because mm-hmm. because of the crack, she probably thought that she had just run off on a bender and would be back sometime and then saw that was like, wait a second. Oh. Crystal Dozier was a mother of seven children. Oh, wow. And, and lived in the area. Her family reported her missing to the Cleveland Police Department. This was not the first time she had gone missing and they accused police of failing to investigate. They ended up having to take action to post flyers and call hospitals themselves. Her son was on the documentary. It was pretty rough to hear. It was just a lot that just like all of it. Amelda Hunter was a beautician and a mother to three children. She didn't live in the area apparently, but did visit frequently. A prior injury left her without use of one of her arms, and her family did not report her missing until after the police began removing the bodies from the house. Michelle Mason was living in the area, and records show that police supposedly conducted a full investigation, quote-unquote, when her family reported her missing, but it's just all really, it's really hard, Yeah, you know? And a lot of the women that did get away and that were on there, they're doing better now. Some have gone to school. They're all, you know, they're getting better, but it's one even had to take the stand. 
Oh, and wow. it was really all he did was sit there and that's what like irritated me watching him was that he would just sit there and just blink repla- repeatedly at her like she's bawling her eyes out recounting everything that happened to her and things that she had seen because she saw a dead body and in one of the rooms and still was able to pretend like she didn't because he was going to kill her because he assumed she had seen it she played pretend played that she wasn't going to tell anybody played it off like i don't know what you're talking about we had fun last night i thought you were a little rough than what i'm used to but no big deal yeah but she was like freaking out inside she just knew she had to do everything which genius yeah for someone like on drugs that has gone through you know that to have that clear of a mind to think all right i gotta pretend and she even said that she walked down the stairs arm in arm with him knowing that if she did one thing wrong it was her death yeah and he walked her to the door opened it let her go and she ran quick thinking and super brave just incredible to get herself out of that situation i don't like yeah if i were in that situation i don't know how i'd react i'd probably probably be able to read it all over my face yeah no matter how hard i try it's just incredible that she was able to do that east cleveland police also reopened several cold cases from the late 80s the murders by strangulations used a similar modus operandi as they say and ended around 1989 which just so happened to be the year that so well had been arrested for the rape the fbi was gathering information to see if so well could be linked to any of the unsolved cases in the cities where he once lived but i didn't see any updates or hear anything on that after so well's conviction in december of 2011 His former home at 12205 Imperial Avenue was demolished by order of the city leaders. It was, from what I saw and everything, I believe it was turned into a garden, like a remembrance garden for the 11 that were murdered. He was incarcerated at... I keep having a hard time with the city, and I've stayed there. Every time we go up to Michigan... (laughs) For grandma's things, we stayed in this town. Chillicothe. Yeah. Chillicothe Correctional Institution. I'm going with that. Okay. I've never <laughs> I've been to, there. I couldn't. I couldn't. I've, uh, I asked the local at the hotel, and I think that's how I remember her pronouncing it. And for 10 years, this is where he was kept. Up until the 21st of January, 2021 when he was transferred to the Franklin Medical Center in Columbus to begin receiving end-of-life care for an unsuspected terminal illness, where he stayed until he died on February 8th, 2021. Good riddance. Wow. The case was profiled on investigation Discover Show Killer Instinct. Unseen is the name of the documentary. I watched it on Amazon Prime. It's definitely a good watch. Keep tissues. I cried a lot. And it's a documentary about the victims and survivors of So Well. It was produced by Laura Paglin and released in 2016. In November of 2012, So Well released a letter through the website Serial Killers Inc. The letter was to the people of Cleveland. He objected to a former trial judge and newly elected Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Tim McGinty and addressed the issue of artwork that he had recently sent to the owner of the website, which just seems like he was still crazy. On July 16, 2021, the ground was broken for the Garden of Eleven Angels Memorial at the former home, and it was dedicated on November 6, 2021. On July 24th, 2021, five women who survived kidnappings by Sowell told their stories to Oxygen's snapped episode, Notorious, the Cleveland Strangler. 
So I found my information on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, The Big Book of Serial Killers, Unseen, the documentary, and also from the ParCast podcast, Serial Killers. I tried to take in as much information I could. The Big Book of Serial Killers is an encyclopedia of serial killers by Jack Rosewood and co-author Rebecca Lowe. It was a little long, but it was a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. And sad. Yeah. So, I... <laughs> Yours mine's, too? My, well, mine's another old one. So I don't mm -hmm. want to say... Well, it's definitely not happier by yeah. any means. But it's um, one of the worst families like families in the Midwest that I know of. You may have heard of them, the Bender family, also known as the Bloody Benders. Mm. We're a family of serial killers in Labette County, Kansas, from May 1871 to December 1872. The family included John Bender, his wife, Elvira, John Jr., and Kate. In October 1870... Five families of spiritualists homesteaded in and around the township of Osage in northwestern Labette County, uh, which is about seven miles northeast of where Cherryvale was established about seven months later. One of those families was John Bender Sr. and John Bender Jr., who registered 160 acres of land adjacent to the Great Osage Trail which at the time was the only open road for traveling further west. After a cabin, a barn with a corral, and well were built, in the fall of 1871, Elvira Bender and daughter Kate arrived, and the cabin was divided into two rooms by a canvas wagon cover. The Benders used the smaller room in the back for living quarters, and the front room was converted into a general store, and they also kind of made it an inn where people could stop by as they were going through the trail. That front section had a kitchen and a dining table for meals for the family as well as travelers. And Elvira and Kate Bender also planted a two-acre vegetable garden and an apple orchard. So they were, they were setting up there. John Bender Sr. was around 60 years old and spoke little English. And according to a May 23rd, 1873 edition of the Emporia News, he was identified with the name William Bender. Elvira Bender was 55 years old and supposedly so unfriendly that her neighbors called her a she-devil. Just what you want from somebody owning an inn. John Bender Jr. was around 25 years old with auburn hair a mustache and spoke English fluently with a German accent. John would laugh kind of at weird times, which made many people think he was like a halfwit or stupid or whatever. Kate was around 23, spoke English well with little accent, and Kate was a self proclaimed healer and psychic who distributed flyers advertising her uh, powers and her ability to cure illnesses. She conducted seances and gave lectures on spiritualism, where she gained some notoriety for advocating free love. <laughs> Is it weird for the time? Kate's uh, popularity became an attraction for the Benders Inn. And although the older benders kept themselves kate and john jr regularly attended sunday school in nearby harmony grove the benders were believed to be german Im immigrants however no documentation or proof of their relationships to one another like where they were born or any of that has ever been found john bender senior was either from germany norway or the netherlands and may have been born john flickinger According to some sources, Elvira was born Almira Hall Mark in the Adirondack Mountains. It said that she married Simon Mark, with whom she claimed to have 12 children. Later, she married William St 
Stephen Griffith. Elvira was rumored to have murdered several husbands, but none of those rumors were ever proven. So there's a lot of stories about this family, like, maybe they were this, maybe they were that. And Kate was supposedly Elvira's fifth daughter, but some of the Bender's neighbors claim that John and Kate, like John Jr. and Kate were not brother and sister, but actually husband and wife. So there's no real details on their relationships to each other. I already mentioned how Kate claimed to be a medium. And, you know, she gave speeches about it. Kate declared that murder might be a... This is the quote from uh, Wikipedia. Might be a dictation for good. That in what the world might deem villainy, her soul might read bravery, nobility, and humanity. And, you know, I already said she all she advocated for free love and denounced all social regulations for the promotion of purity and the prevention of carnality, which she called miserable requirements of self-constituted society. So any of that about that doesn't seem to fit in the time period. No. The free love and being open and carnal was, you know, not. Well, free love. You said this was the 70s? 1870. Oh, 1870. I was thinking 1970. I was going to say, for some reason, I thought 19, but yeah, 1870. Yeah, that definitely wouldn't wouldn't have been a free love time frame. That's like 100 years too early. Too early. I will say the strange part of this is that one of the main characters on The Breakfast Club was named John Bender. Ah, yeah. So that every time you say that, I... It gives me a flash (laughs) of the Breakfast Club. And this also makes me wonder if House of a Thousand Corpses was based off of this in any way. Because the family, that's all I could think of is the family and like lovers and stuff based off of that were all the killers. Mom, dad, kids. Maybe. It just makes me question it. If maybe that's why they're so well known, everybody just makes things historically they're you know it's pretty big big deal at the time yeah but okay so this is this is where the gross part with the siblings it's said kate had a sexual relationship with john jr and had said shall we confine ourselves to a single love and deny our natures their proper sway even though it be a brother's passion for his own sister, I say it should not be smothered. And that's why people assumed they're brother and sister. Because you say stuff like that, it's gross. Yeah. <laughs> Very much ill. I will yuck your yum if you're going for yourself. Right. I think, yeah. so I hope we could all agree. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. In May 1871, the body of a man named Jones was discovered in Drum Creek with his skull crushed and throat cut. The owner of the Drum Creek claim was suspected, but nothing was done. In February 1872, the bodies of two men were found with the same injuries as Jones, and by 1873, reports of missing people who had passed through the area had become so common that travelers began to avoid that trail. The area was widely known for horse thieves, And vigilance committees often arrested some for the disappearances, only for them to be released later. Many innocent men under suspicion were also run out of the county by these committees, just because they suspected like they were the ones doing it. So they're, you know, get out of here. In the winter of 1872, George Newton Longcore left Independence, Kansas, with his infant daughter, Mary Ann, to go to Iowa, and the two were never seen again. In the spring of 1873, Longcore's former neighbor, Dr. William Henry York, went looking for them and questioned people who lived along the trail. York reached Fort Scott and on March 9th left to return to Independence, but never arrived. York had two brothers, Ed York, who lived in Fort Scott, and Colonel Alexander M. York, a Civil War veteran, lawyer, and member of the Kansas State Senate from Independence. Both knew of William's travel plans, and when he did not return, a search began. Colonel York led around 50 men and questioned every traveler along the trail and visited all the area homesteads. 
On March 28, 1873, Colonel York arrived at the Benders Inn and explained that his brother had gone missing and asked if they'd seen him. They admitted Dr. York had stayed with them and suggested that maybe he had run into trouble with Indians. Lovely. Yeah. I I don't know about the time, like what was common, but Colonel York agreed it could have been possible and stayed for dinner. On April 3rd, Colonel York returned to the inn with armed men after he was told that a woman had fled from the inn after Elvira Bender had threatened her with knives. The Benders denied the story, but when York repeated what he was told, Elvira became enraged and said the woman was a witch who had cursed her coffee and ordered the men to leave her house. And this was the first time that her skill with English English language was better than she led people to believe. Because she was leading to believe she, like, she can barely speak any English, you know, heavy accent, she doesn't understand. Well, with that, they're like, okay. <laughs> You can clearly speak and understand English. Right. Before York left, Kate asked him to return alone the following Friday night, and she would use her abilities to help him find his brother. The men with York were convinced that the Benders and a neighboring family, the Roaches, were guilty and wanted to hang them, but York insisted they needed evidence. So at least he was thinking clearly. Around the same time, neighboring communities started to make accusations that the Osage community was responsible for the disappearances, and Osage Township arranged a meeting in the Harmony Grove Schoolhouse. Seventy-five people from the area attended the meeting, including Colonel York and both Bender men. After discussing the disappearances, including that of William York, they decided to search every homestead between Big Hill Creek and Drum Creek. Even though York had suspicions that the Benders were involved since his visit there weeks earlier, no one watched them and it was not noticed until days later that they had vanished. Three days after the meeting, a man named Billy Toll was driving cattle past the Benders' homestead when he noticed the inn was abandoned and the farm animals were left. Toll reported what he saw to the township trustee, but due to the weather, several days went by before they could investigate. A search party was formed that included Colonel York, and when they arrived at the inn, they found the cabin empty. No food, clothing, or personal possessions remained. The search party noticed a bad odor, and a trapdoor was found underneath the bed, nailed shut. After opening the trap, they found clotted blood on the floor of the empty room underneath, six feet deep, seven feet square at the top by three feet square at the bottom. So this is, you know, a good-sized hole underneath right. their house. They found no bodies and determined the smell was from blood that had soaked into the soil in the hole. The men even... This must have been a small cabin. I don't know how they did this, but it says the men moved the cabin to dig under it, but didn't find any bodies. How did they just move the cabin? I... <laughs> Let's just pick it up and move it over there, guys. I guess it'd be very small. (laughs) I guess if a wagon canvas could make a whole wall, then it wouldn't have been too, like, too big. Plus a dirt floor, I'm guessing. So, I don't know. There was a trap door. How would they move it? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) They then took a metal rod and probed the ground around the cabin, focusing mainly on the disturbed soil of the vegetable garden and the orchard. This is where the body of Dr. York was found later that evening, buried face down with his feet barely below the surface. The probing continued into the night with another nine possible grave sites marked before the men stopped searching for the night. The next morning, eight more bodies were found. Seven in the suspected graves, with an additional body found in the well, along with a number of body parts. Yikes on bikes. Why would you put a body in the well? That's your drinking water source. You're just drinking dead body. Yuck. That makes no sense. It's gross. So all but one had their heads bashed with a hammer and throats cut. Newspapers reported all were indecently mutilated. The body of a young girl was found, and it was speculated she was either strangled or buried alive. 
And it's thought, at least in modern stories, that when a guest stayed at the Bender's Inn, they would give the guest a seat at the table that was over a trapdoor into the cellar. The victim's back would be to that cloth. And Kate would distract the guest while John Bender Sr. or Jr. came from behind the curtain. They would hit the guest on the skull with a hammer. And one of the women would then cut the victim's throat. And the body would be dropped through the trapdoor. And when I was reading that too, it seemed very Sweeney Todd. Very. Like the cutting the throat. It's like I've seen this movie. Yeah. So it's very reminiscent of that when I was reading it. Afterwards, the body would be stripped and buried somewhere on the property. While some of the victims were wealthy, others carried items of little value. So it was thought the Benders had just killed for the thrill. Testimony from people who stayed at the Benders Inn and lived seemed to support the execution method theory. William Pickering said that when he refused to sit near the wagon cloth because of the stains on it, Kate Bender threatened him with a knife, so he fled. A Catholic priest claimed to have seen one of the Bender men hiding a large hammer, uh, making him uncomfortable, and he quickly left. Two men who had traveled to the inn for Kate Bender's, uh, we're using air quotes here, psychic powers. <laughs> Stayed for dinner, but refused to sit at the table next to the cloth, instead eating their meals at the main shop counter. Kate became angry, and the Bender men came out from behind the cloth. The men felt uneasy and decided to leave. Yeah. Stories of the murder spread, and more than 3,000 people, including reporters from as far away as New York City and Chicago, visited the site. The Bender cabin was eventually destroyed by souvenir hunters who took everything, including the bricks that line the cellar and the stones lining the wall. People people would be crazy. <laughs> yeah. That was a thing at the time. I guess you had nothing better to do. You just would take souvenirs from places. It's an odd choice. All right. Especially, I don't know what it was. It was like morbid stuff. People would especially want to take souvenirs of State Senator Alexander York offered a $1,000 reward for the family's arrest. That's about, uh, it's over $22,000 as of 2023. And Kansas Governor Thomas A. Osborne offered a $2,000 reward for the apprehension of all four. And that was, that's over $45,000 as of 2023. Detectives followed wagon tracks and discovered the Bender's wagon abandoned with starving horses just outside Thayer, Kansas, 12 miles north of the inn. It was discovered that the family bought tickets on the Leavenworth, Lawrence, and Galveston Railroad headed for Humboldt, Kansas. At Chanute, Kansas, John Jr. and Kate left the train and caught the MKNT train south to Red River County near Denison, Texas. From there, it's thought they traveled to an outlaw colony thought to be in the border region between Texas and New Mexico. However, they weren't pursued as any lawmen following outlaws into the region often never returned. One detective later claimed he traced the pair to the border where he found that John Jr. had died of apoplexy which i had to look it up and it's now better known as a stroke john senior and elvira did not leave the train at humboldt and instead continued north to kansas city where it's believed they purchased tickets for st louis missouri several groups of vigilantes formed to search for the benders some stories say one group actually caught and shot all of them and that kate was burned alive Another group claimed they caught the benders and lynched them before throwing their bodies into a nearby river. And another claimed they killed the benders during a gunfight and buried their bodies on the prairie. However, no one ever claimed the rewards offered by Senator York and Governor Osborne. But after reading that stuff, I was like, if each group did find and kill families, how many innocent people were slaughtered because they were looking for the bender family 
Or was it just stories trying to be better known, you know? I'm thinking that's more likely. Yeah. The story of the Bender's escape spread, and the search continued on and off for the next 50 years. Two women traveling together were often accused of being Kate Bender and her mother. In 1884, it was reported that John Flickinger committed suicide in Lake Michigan. Also in 1884, an elderly man matching John Bender Sr.'s description was arrested in Montana for a murder committed near Salmon, Idaho, where the victim had been killed by a hammer to the head. A message requesting positive ID was sent to Cherryvale, but the suspect severed his foot. To escape his leg irons and he bled to death. Wow. Yikes. By the time a deputy from Cherryvale arrived, identification was impossible because of decomposition. Despite the lack of identification, the man's skull was displayed as that of Pa Bender in a and it's it says salmon Idaho, but is it salmon? I don't know. I'm sorry, Idaho people, if any of you are listening. It was in a saloon there until Prohibition forced it to close in 1920 and the skull disappeared. And it's unknown whether John Flickinger was really John Bender. Twelve men, this <laughs> is the quote, of bad repute in general, would later be arrested in connection with the Benders. Several weeks after the discovery of the bodies, Addison Roach and his son-in-law, William Buxton, were arrested as accessories. All 12 men arrested had been involved in disposing of the victim's stolen goods, with Mitt Cherry, a member of the Vigilance Committee, implicated for forging a letter from one of the victims informing the man's wife he had arrived safely at his destination in Illinois. The Bender's friend named Brockman was also arrested in connection and was arrested again 23 years later for the rape and murder of his own 18-year-old daughter. And... Weirdly, stories of the Benders had an unexpected connection to Michigan. On October 31st, 1889, it was reported that Elmira Monroe, also known as Elmira Griffith, and Sarah Eliza Davis were arrested in Niles, Michigan for larceny. They're released after being found not guilty, but then immediately rearrested for the Bender murders. According to the Pittsburgh Dispatch, the daughter of one of the Bender's victims, Frances E. McCann, had reported the pair to authorities in early October after tracking them down. Mrs. McCann's story came from dreams about her father's murder, which she discussed with Sarah Eliza. The women's identities were later confirmed by two Osage Township witnesses from a tintype photograph. In mid-October, Deputy Sheriff Leroy Dick, the Osage Township trustee, laughing at that name who headed the search of the bender property arrived in michigan and arrested them on october 30th following their release on larceny charges mrs monroe resisted declaring that she would not be taken alive but was subdued by local deputies (laughs) mrs davis claimed that mrs monroe was elvira bender but that she herself was not kate but her sister sarah she later signed an affidavit Well, Mrs. Monroe denied the identification and in turn accused Sarah Eliza of being the real Kate Bender. So she pulled the Uno reverse. (laughs) Like, I'm not this lady, but you're that one. And then this next part was basically copied and pasted from Wikipedia because there was a lot to this. So Deputy Sheriff Dick, along with Mrs. McCann, escorted the pair to Oswego, Kansas where seven members of a 13-member panel confirmed the identification and committed them for trial. Another of Mrs. Monroe's daughters, Mary Gardy, later provided an affidavit claiming that her mother, then known as Almira Shearer, under the name of Almira Marks, was actually serving two years in the Detroit House of Corrections in 1872 for the manslaughter of her daughter-in-law, Emily Mark. Records of the incarceration back up the affidavit. At her hearing, Mrs. Monroe denied any knowledge of Shear or the manslaughter charge and remained incarcerated with her daughter. 
Originally scheduled for February 1890, the trial was held until May. And at the time that came about, Mrs. Monroe admitted she had married a Mr. Shearer in 1872 and claimed she had previously denied it because she didn't want the court to know that her name was Shearer and at the time and that she had a conviction for a manslaughter. Don't know how she got out of that one, but... Their attorney also produced a marriage certificate indicating that Mrs. Davis had been married in Michigan in 1872, the time when several of the murders were committed. Eyewitness testimony was given that Mrs. Monroe was Elvira Bender. Judge Calvin dismissed Mary uh, Grady's affidavit as she was, is quote, chip off the old block. <laughs> so basically you saying... There was proof that the women could never be convicted and just charged them both. So it, it was just a, a mess. A lot of back and forth. A lot of people saying these are the benders or this person's here. There were other sightings. And according to a news report, an unnamed man from Kansas City who had investigated the benders house and the rumors of their deaths multiple times Claimed the Kelly family were the benders. <laughs> the man said all the stories of their capture was made up, supposedly by a group of Confederates who helped the benders dispose of the murdered victims' horses and wagons. He pointed out the way both families operated, the number in their family, and other evidence proved the Bender and Kelly families were the same. But in total, by including body parts that would not match the bodies found, it's speculated that there were more than 20 victims of the Bender family. With the exception of Mackenzie and York, who were buried in Independence, the Longcores, who were buried in Montgomery County, and McCrady, who was buried in Parsons, Kansas, none of the other bodies were claimed, and they were reburied at the base of a small hill, one mile southeast of the Bender's Orchard, one of several at the location now known as the Bender's Mounds. After searching the cabin, three hammers were found, a shoe hammer, a claw hammer, and a sledgehammer that appeared to match indentations in some of the skulls. The hammers were given to the Bender Museum in 1967 by the son of Leroy Dick, the Osage Township trustee who headed the search of the Bender property. The hammers were displayed at the Bender Museum in Cherryville, Kansas from 1967 to 1978. Some locals objected to the town being known for the Bender murders, and the Bender artifacts were eventually given to the Cherryville Museum where they remain. A knife with a four-inch tapered blade was reportedly found hidden in a mantle clock in the Bender house by Colonel York. In 1923, it was donated to the Kansas Museum of History by York's wife, but is not on display. It still has a uh, reddish-brown stain on the blade and can be seen upon request. A historical marker describing the Bender's crimes is located in the rest area at the junction of U.S. Route 400 and U.S. Route 169 north of Cherryville. That's the uh, crazy story of the the Bender family of Kansas. Yeah. I just can't get over the fact of so many people like agreeing to help them with this. Yeah. Like when I first heard about them it was you know this this family did it in secret. They were you know killing people and stealing from them kind of thing as they went down the trail. But A lot of stories do include other people being involved, getting rid of horses and wagons and stuff of the people as they came through, which I guess makes sense because they couldn't just have their inn surrounded by wagons and nobody else there. Right. Why do four people need ten wagons? (laughs) Or why so many horses? Where'd you get these from? Right. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So some of that was from Wikipedia, obviously. There's some information from Library of Congress. It was cool. They've got a lot of um, images and newspaper clippings and, 
and all that stuff there. <laughs> and then there is a website called Legends of America that has a section on the benders. Wow. Crazy. Yep. Starting off strong with the Midwest here. <laughs> yeah. Very. Definitely a lot to take in. Yeah. I need another Tweety Bird story. Yeah. <laughs> Something Tweety. funny. Is there another Tweety Bird robber? That's what we'll have to do when when we're getting done with Midwest March. We'll have to do something funny. Yeah. Going back to Michigan, like two funny, silly crime stories <laughs> to make us giggle through all of this craziness. It's true. But thank you for joining us on our first time doing this series of the Midwest March Madness. Stay safe out there, guys. Watch out for the crazies. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.